Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Anthony Cumio is installing heaters and air conditioners at the age of 33 when a song parody he wrote about O.J. Simpson caught the attention of a Long Island radio DJ named Greg Hughes. Hughes invited Cumio to sit in with him, and from there, the Opie and Anthony show was born. That was 1994. Twenty years later, SiriusXM fired Cumio after one ill-advised stunt and tweet storm too many and ended the jock duo's reign of shock and comedy. But Kumia rebounded by starting a live stream from his home. Now he's built a thriving network of 10 shows out of a Manhattan studio called Compound Media. And he just published his memoir. It's called Permanently Suspended. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! Well, Anthony Kumia, thank you for taking some time to talk to me after talking to everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those. Th- and I did an earlier show today. I did the Louis J. Gomez show. So I'm on uh, crazy overtime right now. Oh, I wow. think I may have worked three hours so far. <laughs> uh, so, but always a pleasure, yes. Well, what is a typical day for you like? Because you are running compound media with Keith. Well, running. Or does Such, Keith do, uh, do all the heavy lifting and then you come in? Yeah, there, there. It's it's odd. There are two distinct, different companies here in one. Mm-hmm. One is an entertainment company, and I, you know, I love getting on mic and and talking. It's what I've done. It's my strong suit, as they say. Uh, and then there's a technical and business end to it. That I'm not very savvy with things like that. Never have been. I don't try to fool myself or anybody else that I am. So I have people that know what they're doing to take care of that end of it. Okay. So And I get updates on what's going on. But uh, for the most part, I'm just put me behind the mic and let me talk. That's what I do. And then everything else that needs to be done. I like to delegate responsibility. It uh, gives me more time for video games. <laughs> This is the third time we've actually talked. Uh, and you, you do look familiar. I find it interesting because uh, the first time we talked, I was a reporter at the Boston Herald. The Herald. In 2005, uh, you, Opie, and little Jimmy were making a triumphant return. To BCN. To broad- You were broadcasting across the street from Fenway Park. Yeah. A special special broadcast and then yes. the next next time i met you uh what was that iraq bill's bar bill's bar, bar. yeah no, it was it was bill's bar lansdowne street yeah and uh and then the next time was 2007 here in new york i was a reporter at the daily news and you were just coming back from a suspension yes <laughs> yeah so, uh, i feel like i always come to see you when you're just Getting back from the bottom. Well, it's not uh, odd because it had happened so many times. <laughs> Hence the title of the book, Permanently Suspended. It seems like my entire life has been uh, just either teetering on the edge of, of disaster mm-hmm. or falling off of the edge of disaster. Uh, constantly being suspended, reprimanded, fired, uh it, it, it criticized. It just comes with the territory. And if you know, you're doing the type of radio that we were doing with the ONA show and now with, with Compound Media, you're going to piss people off. They're going to be offended. And 
uh, sometimes if the powers that be get a hold of it, um, you will get your ass thrown out of there. But as you say in the book, you've kind of always been a little bit of a thrill seeker in terms of seeing where the line is and how much danger can you get into without getting into serious danger. Yeah. Starting from Norman Esaias and breaking your arm in the fifth grade. Yeah, see, that was, I should have kept my mouth shut. My whole life, that could have been the title of the book. I should have kept my mouth shut. Uh, No, it's true. During my life, I'd never been more... much of a physical thrill seeker Mm -hmm. like uh my brother with parachuting and things like that but uh as far as saying things yeah i've always wanted the ability to just say whatever the hell i want and and with comedy trying to be funny try to be the funny guy in school and everything you just blurt things out you don't think about consequence uh the consequence is the antithesis of funny uh, if you wait too long to say something, it's not funny anymore. Mm-hmm. And that time period could be literally seconds and something isn't funny because you thought about it too much. So I just like throwing it out there. If it gets a big laugh, I I can't be bothered with what the consequence will be from telling a joke. First of all, it's ridiculous that there are consequences for jokes. But especially in this day and age, it's um, – it's i think it's curtailing a lot of creativity in comedy uh and i will have no part of it i will say whatever the hell i want so then how how much do you feel fortunate then that 20 years into the game we were at a place where you could create your own media network yeah yeah that i mean like if you had gotten bounced from the radio 10 years ago, you might yeah. not have known what to do. No one could predict where uh, the business was going and right. digital and the ability to uh, do it yourself and in a very professional way. Um, it, 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 no one saw that coming. And it was the savior of a lot of people, I think, that would have been gone, uh, never would have heard from them again. That's what used to happen at jocks that got fired you just never heard from them again there were a few Do you people know where that, some of those people ended up going i don't know but there are guys like uh the grease man i mm-hmm. guess the grease man said some very offensive things back uh, many years ago and and he disappeared from the face of the earth i don't know where he is maybe he is somewhere but the fact that you know i don't know where that is uh is quite telling right i only <laughs> i only know where what bubba the love sponge is doing because hulk hogan took down gawker.com right right <laughs> it's just this constant battle it seems like people trying to screw other people over <laughs> and get them uh exiled from uh, the entertainment right. business so it is nice and yeah i i'm very thankful that technology and kind of the um I don't know, human nature, as it were, that they want, they want to be entertained. And I don't think uh, many people want that kind of censorship going on in their uh, entertainment these days. Well, before we really get into that, I want to take a step back to 1994 when you're still working uh, in HVAC. Oh, boy. And uh, you and your brother have a band and you're doing some, some jingles and some song parodies. Yeah. The OJ song was the one that got you noticed. Yeah, that was did, the, did the your, hit. <laughs> did your brother, the ones before that, did your brother try, or you try sending those out, the earlier yeah. ones? Yeah, we, we were making song parodies for years, even before that. Like in the 80s, uh, we were making song parodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brother had sent a lot of them actually to Howard's show, to Howard Stern's show, because okay. he would always have parody contests right. and things like that. And we would send them in and never, you know... 
never got a a response or never got it played on the air. But we would listen every day and go, maybe he's going to play our our song today. Uh, so it started out that way. And then he started sending them out to other radio stations. Mm-hmm. So there were a few like... Um, did, he have, did he have any sort of plan like looking for Dr. Demento type people or, or just flooding like the market? His whole idea, idea behind it was... To just get our band's name out there. So if a song what was the band's parody, name? I think at the time <laughs> we went through so many. It might have been Rotgut at the time, but uh, mm-hmm. there was so many. But he just wanted to get some type of publicity for the band. So uh, the song parodies were a good way to get a foot in the door at radio stations. So he would send them up to PLR in Connecticut and all the the rock stations in New York and, okay, and so uh, just more of a regional blast yeah and he would send a parody and then follow it up with a CD of our band kind of a thing. just trying to get some how much do you suppose he spent on postage for all that uh, probably a lot <laughs> you know you can't just email it like you do now Joe is the Joe is my brother's very motivated mm-hmm. so he was the guy that was really pushing uh, everything and he's the guy that went to the door of BAB uh, with that tape of uh, the OJ song parody and, and got Opie to come to the back door because one of the interns, I guess it was, was like, yeah, he's busy. Sorry, I'll take the tape mm-hmm. and give it to him. And Joe's like, no, no, have him come back here. I want to talk to him. And uh, Opie did. He came to the back door and Joe talked to him. He gave him the mm-hmm. tape. So oh, God knows where this all would have ended up if if Joe just gave the tape to the intern. Right. <laughs> and at the time, you're 33. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you're an 18-year-old there weren't many idealists. Uh, no, You'd there already, weren't many opportunities left. <laughs> you already hit some like peak cynical years. <laughs> yeah, to yeah. Go like, oh, this is my life now. Yeah, that was the scariest part. Was you know looking at all these construction guys that were in their forties and fifties right. and thinking like, oh God, please no, I I cannot be that guy. I can't do it. How did you How did you handle that period? Uh, a lot of anxiety. That's what it was. A lot of uh, drinking. Uh, it was it was horrible. And it was me and my brother were in the same line of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends of mine that ended up getting into comedy. Adam Ferrara and Joe okay. Curry work, worked at a fence company. So we were all in these crappy jobs. And we all wanted out. We wanted some way out. And the band and comedy and me doing any kind of radio, that was all this chance. Like we had, we knew the odds were astronomical of it actually working, Mm -hmm. but it was at least going to work every day with something in your head going, well, I got a gig next weekend, or I, I, I wrote this song, or something to just give you that hope that maybe you, you won't be doing this for the rest of your life. Because that was the hardest part. If you didn't have those other things, those options that maybe might pay off. It's like the t- period of time before you buy a lottery t- or after you buy a lottery ticket, but before the drawing. Right. When you, you have that like, it could happen. <laughs> like, it still could. And, and you Somebody's know, got the numbers. It might as well got be to win. I, yeah. So that was uh, kind of the situation we were in for many years. And that's what got us through was just drive and, and keep going with... Uh, things in the entertainment field. But Opie was the first one to actually let you in the studio. Uh, or, uh, do, or There were no. a couple of guys. There was uh, Chaz at PLR. Okay. He had done that. But he was more of a kind of a jock guy mm-hmm. that was just, you know, you're the guest, I'm the jock, and that's what we'll do. Opie was much more open to letting me kind of riff on things and do the news. And uh, he always had people up in the studio and stuff. So it was... Uh, 
it was it was a pretty good deal, and he was very open to uh, having other people come on the show. So I appreciate what he, uh, th- that that uh, opportunity that he gave me. That was amazing. One of the interesting things to me in your book is that it it seems as though having comedians become a regular part of the O and A show was not by design as much as it was desperation necessity yeah, yeah. it was uh, we weren't able to get those guests uh, the big guests went to howard mm-hmm. that's just the way it was so would you please keep it down <laughs> trying to conduct an interview for the love of jesus these are your minions get them under control it's okay <laughs> yeah so we had uh uh wait a minute where were we Look at me. The idea that you couldn't get the guests at Howard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, so he, he was getting with, all the guests. New York comedians. And and Howard rarely had uh, New York comics on. He, he had a couple on, uh, but uh, we were just, that was pretty much all we were getting. And we didn't want him to do their act. We didn't want to come in. We wanted people to talk, just mm-hmm. to have a good time. And uh, and I think that worked really well. It, it opened up these comedians to a huge audience. Uh, some of them have done very well over the years. And I think it was that people kind of started to know who they were beyond just their act, like that they were funny people. Um, Bill Burr is a great example of that. Bill, right. We would sit there and talk, and Bill wouldn't do one word of his act. It was all just talking. Patrice O'Neill was just a genius. And you could tell just by him sitting there and talking about the day's events, or the news or whatever, relationships. It was brilliant. So... Uh, yeah, it started out as a necessity, but it ended up being a really huge asset for the show. Yeah, did you know any of those guys? I mean, you mentioned knowing Adam Ferrara, but did you know any of those other comics before they started coming on the show? No, I really <laughs> didn't. I, I had heard uh, a few of them. Even though you were the... The previously, you were the main comedy element of the show before yeah, they yeah. started showing up. I, I really didn't know. I knew a few... Uh, I knew a few of the comics uh, through their act, Mm -hmm. um, but not many of them. Like uh, Brian Regan, I knew. I knew of Regan. I thought he was hilariously funny. Uh, Even the other ones, like, I didn't know Rich, who ended up being, you know, just so great for the show. And uh, Norton, I'd never heard of Jim Norton before he stepped through the door. Uh, He was with Dice when he came in. So that's how I I met him. But it it not only opened up the audience, though, to to these comics, but yeah, me. It it led me to go like, wow, these guys are really funny and really uh, good at what they do. Did did any of them try try to get you to get into stand up? Yeah, that's happened over the years. It will never. I will <laughs> never ever do that. It's. Uh, I, I look at. I look at stand-up comics like uh, they, they're they're a breed of their own. Mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, wait as, a minute. As a few of them leave the building. I can, yeah, yeah. I didn't even recognize you, man. Good to see you. Because I can't. Uh, I can't do what they do. Mm-hmm. It's. It's the idea of getting up on a stage alone with a microphone is frightening to me. Uh, and I think one of the greatest feelings would be that audience just laughing and enjoying what you're doing, which would be great. But it's that other side. They all have stories of bombing. Every single one of them have these 
terrible stories. And meanwhile, they laugh their asses off telling these stories. Yeah. They all love seeing each other bomb. It's like a thing. And all I see is like, I, there's no way I could do that. I would run away. I would run from the stage weeping openly uh, if I was bombing. So that's, that's the great thing about being in a studio. No one. You have no idea if you're bombing or not. Yeah, you, we occasionally <laughs> as long have as you As long as you feel like you're having a great time. Yeah, that's all I care you about. You figure the listeners must be, too. I'm having fun. We have the live audience in occasionally, and when we do live shows, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. But they're, they're, uh, you're preaching to the converted. They're, they're fans of the show. Right. Um, it's not like an audience that just paid to come into a comedy club and goes, oh, Make me laugh now. I don't know who you are. How are your fans, speaking of which, how are your fans now compared to the pests? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of similar. We still have some of the, those uh, pests, but they've mm-hmm. turned on us. Uh, <laughs> it's like a, an evil uh, Dr. Frankenstein kind of a thing. Right. Because uh, they even turned on the comedians, which inadvertently really helped Bill Burr. Oh, yeah, With yeah. that show in that, Philly. That Philly show um, was classic. When you guys mounted a couple of comedy tours, it happened to Bill that first year, and then it happened to Mike Birbiglia the next year. Yeah, yeah. But he didn't get that same bump. No, no, he didn't. But Mike's doing very well. Right. He's on Mike's Broadway now. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've uh, been in a couple of movies, uh, and uh, yeah, I like Mike. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it's the, the audience, especially being a subscriber-based thing, they're mm-hmm. pretty much... Uh, they know what they're getting. You're not outraging anybody. They like what we're doing. So I'm pretty confident that uh, we're, we're putting on good shows and the people are liking it. Uh, I would like to get to you know a bigger audience, obviously. Mm-hmm. It would be nice. But right now, uh, this seems to be the platform that works. So. Well, I mean, you've made it out of your house and back into the city with, <laughs> yeah. a, with a proper studio. Yeah. Not that your home studio isn't proper, but... No, it was, it was getting a little crazy at my house. Uh, uh, Gavin McInnes would come over to do his show. And he's such a nice gentleman. And I love Gavin. He's well, very polite and very... He never, he never you know causes what, though, any trouble. Gavin is very nice and polite. <laughs> I think uh, there's a grave misconception about Gavin. He's a he's a nice, sweet guy. His family's great. I love him. Uh, but he would come over to do the show after mine, mm-hmm. and I would just go upstairs and watch TV or just relax and stuff. And he'd be all wound up from doing his show, come upstairs and want to talk. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm done talking for the day. I'm done. You ain't getting... It's hard to separate business from... Yeah, life. that would... And then we had the Legion of Skanks on for a while okay. from the house. And, you know, in order to do the show they would need their legion of skanks so they would bring people audience members over to my house and they'd be in my basement like some kind of a psychotic na meeting and uh, then occasionally during the summer months they would jump in my pool so i'm out there with uh, you know skanks in my pool and mm-hmm. gavin's in my living room and i just wanted to go to sleep or play video games how many subscribers did you have when you made the jump back here back to manhattan with the studio uh, you'd have to talk to uh, Keith about that. We don't talk subscriber numbers. numbers. <laughs> we don't talk numbers. It's all—it's some kind of business thing. They go, we don't. We don't talk. Well, I guess that's. I guess I like getting into the nuts and bolts, though, because it's really a DIY. Yeah, yeah, Experience yeah. to go. Okay, I'm in a home studio. I mean, Joe Rogan is still in a home studio. Yeah, true, true. And, but he's doing just fine, and he's just fine with it. Yeah, yeah. We. Uh, but how do you like? How much of it was I just I need to get everybody out of my house versus 
versus oh, I'm doing successful enough that I I can take it out of my house and yeah, put it in it, the city. We we were able to build it up pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, no, I would have dealt with the person I am. I would have dealt with people in my house for years. It didn't mm. matter. Uh, but in order to get guests out there, I'm in Roslyn, out on Long Island, so it's a lot easier if a guest has a few things to do here in the city. Right. They're not going to then cut it off, drive out to Roslyn, drive back, takes hours, and eat up on time where they could be doing press for something else. No, you or, just have access to so many more people. Yeah, you have access to more people. It's just the way it is. And just being in a bigger studio in New York City, it's uh, we needed to do it as far as the equipment goes. and It's just easier, and uh, I definitely needed to just get out of the house, too. <laughs> like to have to work from home and then just not leave afterwards – I pretty much was in my home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, <laughs> how did you how did you decide how to build out the the network? Was it was it strategic at all, or was it more here's here's people I like, here's friends of mine? Yeah, at you first, have a show, you get a show. Yeah, well, at first it was just me, and then when people saw because I had built my studio uh, in my house yeah. and. I think over time it, it turned into a very professional studio. I was putting out quality HD video and audio. It didn't sound like a crappy microphone or something. So, um, right, other, and you were doing video too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So other people were kind of like, hey. that, and that was before Rogan switched to video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I immediately started uh, live from the compound at my house with video. It was always a, a video cast. Uh, so yeah, Rogan was like. Holy shit, that's a good idea. I'll do that. Right. I'll just uh, do it from my house. Uh, <laughs> and it works. And it worked well. And people saw it and were like, hey, I, you know, what are you guys doing? I would like to do a show on your network or on, on whatever. It wasn't even a network at the time. I still don't know what it is. But uh, <laughs> Well, now it's Compound Media. At the beginning, it was the Anthony. Anthony yeah, Media. yeah. Because it was just going to be me. Right. That was all we kind of initially went into it as. Uh, we were up and running a month after I got fired. We knew we had a strike while the iron was hot. Get in there. and Before people forgot about you. Yeah, that's what happens. So we had to get in there quick, uh, which we did. We were up and so running in a month. Man. Yeah, yeah. And then we realized, wow, you know, we could do other shows and mm -hmm. make other things of it. And hence, you know, Compound Media instead of just uh, my name on there. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, we've gotten some really good shows. The shows are just, I like people that are open, honest, not afraid, uh, not apologetic. Uh, we all have different shows, but there's this common thread of just being an absolutist when it comes to, I want to be able to say everything I want to say. Um, and it's so rare these days. Everybody has something hanging over their head, sponsors or uh, another gig or reputation, whatever it is. Uh, this platform here at Compound Media really gives us the most ability you're ever going to get anywhere to really 100% be able to say what you want to say. And uh, I couldn't be happier about that. <laughs> is there anything your your network is missing right now that you would like to have? Um, I think... Think show wise, not not a oh, yeah. monster. No, no, I I, I know in terms of like <laughs> decor, or pinball machines, or video yeah, games. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Free Krispy Kremes, you know, not that kind of stuff. No, in terms I, of the, the content you make, there the are shows you put out. Thing, there are certain shows I guess would be nice. I don't think it's imperative. I don't think we're like, oh, my God, we need this. But I guess maybe more of a, I guess, liberal point of view would be nice for people to maybe want to tune into. But uh, it's not necessary. And then you get trouble with that anyway. Always reporting things and getting angry. At uh, whatever what everyone else is saying, <laughs> I don't know. It just seems we have a nice little family of shows here that get along, and okay. you know, you don't want to mix it. I up. don't want to muck that whole thing up. <laughs> well, there aren't any sort of like loyalty tests or anything that people have to. No, <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. But it's run like you know. Oh, this, yes, I like Trump. This, this <laughs> no, no. My I don't uh, need to see his taxes. <laughs> The, the the whole uh, gist of the place is like very calm and oh, it's very old school. Mm-hmm. No, there's no HR to run to because somebody said something. It's it, that stuff is just the oh, the death knell of, of anything entertaining or especially comedy wise is to have uh, people just running to an HR department that someone said something or posted something or wrote something. It's like, it just makes people scared. They get afraid. And once you're afraid, you're not going to put stuff out there. You're going to hold back. You're going to filter yourself. You're going to take too much time to deliver that line or joke. And, uh, it's just, it never bodes well for, uh, for entertainment. Well, that's kind of what I thought that, uh, that Pete Davidson apology was. I thought that was SNL kind of caving in. A little little bit. bit. Um, I thought he handled it pretty well. I thought they both did. I I think... uh, I like the idea of of the new congressman ripping Pete a new one. Yeah, Dan... But the whole apology and everything, I I thought they could have done without. I think that was to satisfy the people that were like, you made fun of a wounded combat soldier. But that's what you're saying. It's like the idea that the people that you can't just like have a goof and... Yeah, yeah, but I, I think they in that was a business decision, right? Now that's it was HR, entertaining. That's an HR, yeah, corporate. yeah. It was entertaining, and I think uh, Crenshaw did a great job as far as coming off very human, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, he he looked good in in that exchange. Uh, but the apology thing, I think it was one of those necessary evils. I don't agree with it. I don't. I don't like that they apologize in this day and age. It's necessary because there are people on both sides that will just look to one up the other one. Well, he did that. He did that. Oh, that's hypocritical. You better apologize. Well, why don't you apologize for this? Right. And then it just becomes apologies and unfunny, oversensitive crap. And uh, again, the bane of. Uh, of comedy. Well, I'm not apologizing to the British for their potato famine. They right? sticked on us Irish. Exactly. They, if anyone should apologize, it's the British. Those they British for that potato famine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, the other thing that you, that I just heard you mention on today's show. Spoiler alert: If you haven't uh, gone back to your subscription, <laughs> but you mentioned uh, the Connors, the Roseanne replacement, yeah. not faring so well, and it struck me. I wonder how much you see that situation as like an echo of what happened with you and Sirius, where mm. they tried to go on without without yeah. the, star, the star comic talent, and, yeah, and you're, they, you're going, yeah, we'll see what happens. It's part of the chemistry of everything because uh, I, I think if everyone 
What the hell is that? I think if everyone else left, <laughs> I think we're fine. I don't think uh, no, our I don't listeners think know what's coming through. <laughs> I think if everyone else left and just Roseanne was there, it wouldn't work either. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that whole thing. It's the whole recipe of that show that needs the Connors and Roseanne. Mm-hmm. Now the O and A show at that point needed uh, myself, Jimmy, and Opie. That was the show. Uh, if you take out any one of those. Uh, it will still work in some instances. I think myself and Jimmy could have done a great show. Um, Opie and Jimmy, the tension there was I knew immediately. I'm like, wow, that is not going to work. If it was just my Opie and myself, I think that could have worked. It worked earlier, and I think um, – Like any bad marriage, it could have gone yeah, on Yeah, it could have gone years. on forever. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, but but the Jimmy Opie thing, I knew that was not going to work, mm-hmm. and not for the uh, lack of of talent. You know, Jimmy is right. amazing. John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf uh, Me- are amazing. Yeah, yeah. But people aren't tuning in. To That's see that what show. it is. And uh, you know, I just knew I was always a buffer between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I I was gone, I knew that was uh, not going to be very long for. Life. So, but now that you've now that you've landed safely and yeah. recovered, yeah, four years later, four and a half years later, yeah, yeah, um, wow. Do you feel like it's a, it's enough to just be content, or do you feel like you still have to be ambitious and try to grow Compound mm. Media to become a bigger thing and reach as many people? That's or, uh, great, yeah. Yeah, that's good because I, I've I've thought about that over the course of the years, and um, uh, n- no, I really don't feel. I feel this is this is great right here. What we're doing, I love it. If it grows and becomes huge, that's great too. But I'm not on this mission to be uh, big. Mm-hmm. Like I, uh, I appreciate what we did, what myself and Opie did with the ONA show at NEW and then when Jimmy came on board and uh, everything we accomplished with the show as far as how popular it got and how infamous it wound up getting uh, I had it and it was amazing amazing ride but I am definitely not one of those people that needs to try to ramp back up again to that level it was exhausting it was stressful as hell and uh, I'm comfortable now Uh, Maybe that comes a little with age, but um, it's also that I've I've been through it. And I see people like, you know, like Opie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know Opie's a different kind of person. Opie wants, he's got to have that. And I think he will always try to work up to that. Uh, But I'm content as hell to, you know, come in here every day, two hours a day, four days a week is fine for me. (laughs) If I wanted to do better, I would be here four hours a day five days a week uh really pushing to do more shows and stuff but you know i'm enjoying my streaming audience and yeah i'm i'm enjoying that fan base and yeah i'm having a great time i love doing this and uh it's it's working out very well what what is your opinion now about social media (laughs) i i know (laughs) I, I know it's. I know it, it resulted in all of this. Yeah, it, it kind of forced you into this. Yeah, this I, new piece that you have. But I how do you feel about it now? It's when it first kicked up. I remember seeing what is Twitter. My first inkling of Twitter was um, 
I was on a news site, might have been Drudge or something, mm-hmm. and a plane had crashed. And somebody on the plane posted a picture to Twitter. And it said, picture posted from Twitter. And it was someone's account and everything. I'm like, what is Twitter? And I'm like, because that's an amazing shot. It's a guy and the plane's on the ground and on fire. And people are getting out. I'm like, how do, how do you get that? And I'm like, I, I did a little research. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Let me sign up. And I thought it was an amazing idea, and I gravely overestimated humanity once again because I, I, I had no clue that such an amazing vehicle to exchange ideas, information, news, uh, opinions, uh, amazing pictures from events as they're happening could degenerate into one of the lowest common denominators of cesspool bullying and, and lying and manipulation and destruction of people's lives. I couldn't have seen that coming, but it. I think it's one of the worst things that society has been handed is social media. I was just going to say, do you think that's just true for Twitter or true for any No, form? all social media, because they've yeah. all degraded to that point to some level. Some try to... Be a little happy, like Facebook tries to make it like, oh, this is so grandma could see pictures of the kids. And then meanwhile, it's just people that knew each other their entire lives, hating each other for political opinions. Now, I will block you and you are not my friend anymore. It's like you knew each other your whole lives. Didn't you talk like, oh, but now you're reading their politics. You're getting one side of that person. And um Again, I, as I said, we overestimated human beings to be more Vulcan-like and logical. Uh, it's all emotion-based. It's all this weird narcissistic thing that everyone needs to hear what you have to say and what your opinion is on things. Uh, and and it might cost you your entire career and everything, but you're willing to risk it for what? To get a retweet, to get a like, to get to noticed by a celebrity that might retweet you so you could say – the risk to reward for posting anything on social media is astounding. There's no reward and it's all risk because something you tweet today can be fine. And then tomorrow, it's the worst, most offensive thing. Obviously, I'm kind of condensing the time down, but <laughs> right. there have been tweets. Twitter's 10 years old now. There have been tweets from 10 years ago that are getting brought up that are like, well, now we have to fire you because of – and you would have had no clue. <laughs> 10 years ago, it was toxic, what you're saying. And any kid uh, who posts um, on Twitter now is out of their minds because yeah. you're risking your entire future on – what your opinions are in your teens or early 20s. If, if we were held accountable for everything we said and did in our teens and early 20s, which they are now because of social media, uh, none of us would be working. I read about some of the things you did in your teens. It's, it's astounding, yes. Some Crazy. of them were criminal. Some of them were criminal. Exactly. <laughs> and I didn't post pictures of it or post to strangers that I did this. <laughs> I don't know why people do it, but again, I think it's this need to right. be um, acknowledged. It's this need that, look, I said something uh, smart or funny, and how many of you people agree that it was smart or funny? It's very narcissistic, and it's so dangerous. Well, the thing is, you know, since I mostly talk with comedians and people in comedy, social media was great 
for them in the beginning because yeah. it allowed them to build a fan base. Quick plugs for your gigs, a fan base, right. you put out some jokes. We used to sit and um, I remember for award shows, you would live tweet shows. Yeah. And it, you'd see all the best comics coming up with jokes about what was going on on an awards show. And, you know, some of the jokes would be deemed tasteless and off color and racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever, but they were hilariously funny. Now, again, you'd be nuts to post something like that because everything you could say, somebody will be outraged about it. So what would you say to that teenager out on Long Island now who has some song parodies and some funny voices <laughs> and doesn't want a career yeah. in, in the electrician's union or right the tin knockers or yeah what would you say union? to that what would you say to that teenager about uh about yeah. going for their dreams it's uh it's a different time but one thing is consistent and that's that people like good comedy they want to laugh uh they like being entertained and uh, that whole radio slash podcast slash webcast uh, thing is is still big. And there are people willing to give you a shot uh, through unconventional unconventional uh, means. I know a lot of people that went to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting and right. ended up doing nothing. <laughs> and I never even finished high school and ended up in the number one market within a few years of starting in, in radio. So uh, I would say, yeah, take those unconventional days. Take the risk. Go to that radio station with a tape or a, 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 a CD, uh, or if it's the 90s, <laughs> uh, or a tape if it's the 80s. Like, we, that's what we did. So, um, you know, and it's easier now. You could just send uh, an email or something. Yeah. But, uh, you know, get it out there and, and see if you can uh, get some of these people's attention. Yeah. Well, thanks for getting our attention. Cool. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> appreciate it, Anthony. Thank <laughs> no you. No problem, man. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. For more interviews, reviews, and comedy news, become a paid subscriber at Patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.